I can't have something of that kind of power floating around now, can I? Thank you for saving me. But I wish you hadn't. Welcome to another episode of Friend Request, a podcast where we talk about various pairs in gaming or we look into a relationship that's slightly larger. I'm Jennifer Uncle from Scanline Media. And I'm Colin Detmar from Scanline Media. So uh, who have you brought for us today, Colin? So this is one of the weeks where I have brought a single character. Um, and the thing I want to talk about is kind of the different ways this character has been interpreted uh, through the history, um, basically, I'm I'm looking at Dante from Devil May Cry, and I could forgive anyone who wants to say that Dante is not a very interesting character, right? <laughs> He's yeah, like in, 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 in any individual game, except for maybe DMC Devil May Cry. You could argue that one. He, he's a little better, but otherwise, you're pretty much right, right? He's he's pretty much just this like you know, you know, smart out smart-mouthed uh, action hero type. But there's actually a pretty interesting arc of just sort of how they've tried to represent him across the games, I feel like. So, in the first Devil May Cry, he's um, he's probably the most, like, he, he sometimes, the writing kind of falls flat, flat because it's kind of awkward writing and also not a great translation of it. Um, but Dante is this, like, kind of smart mouth, but still also capable of being quite serious at times, devil hunter, who, yeah, is, is hired to go fight demons and devils. Um, the series uses demon and devil interchangeably, which can be a little confusing sometimes, but, um, and he has an arc where it's like, okay, he's, he's here for the job, but he's also personally invested and, you know, he has some pretty lame lines like flock off feather face when he's about to fight a griffin, right? He's kind of a dork. Um, <laughs> but it's his overall presented as this competent and strong and, you know, like guy who's just sort of like handling his job and enjoying his job, but not like the game thinks he's cool, right? And you move into Devil May Cry 2, which is sort of the the black sheep of the series, which is a game where, like, in almost every element, it feels like they misunderstood a lot of what made the first game special, including the fact that this, you know, smart mouth devil hunter, in Devil May Cry 2, he almost never speaks. He walks through most of the scenes, and it's not like other people don't talk. Other people are talking, and there's this, like, emo-haired guy walking through the scene, and he shoots a few things, and then, like, glowers at the screen. Um, And it's this really weird, jarring presentation of the character that doesn't feel like the same person. And then we get to Devil May Cry 3, and this is where they start to kind of actually think about the character, right? Because it's actually the same team that made Devil May Cry 2, which not a lot of people know. Um, or at least partially. And they're sort of thinking about like, well, okay, we're making a prequel now. And how can we do something with Dante as a character in this prequel. And this is a thing that I feel like people just don't give Devil May Cry 3 enough credit for. We've all seen the really ridiculous, like, intro cutscene, right, where he's, like, shooting the billiard billiard balls around the room and, like, dropping fans and eating pizza while getting stabbed, right? I thought that was in one. No, that's three. Oh, wow. 
Yeah, three three makes it all pretty ridiculous. The thing you need to the thing people don't tend to realize because either they've just seen this stuff out of context or it's been a long time since you played the game. The game thinks Dante's a dork. <laughs> and like it, it makes it pretty clear there's a there's a cutscene early on after like he he leaves his shop, which just got attacked by demons, and he like tosses sword in the air and does this elaborate like spinning, twirling, put on his coat move that's supposed to look really cool, and then he catches his sword. And then he sneezes, and the sneeze is just the extra little bit of disturbance to the ear that makes his shop collapse behind him. And he's like, oh, man. It's just like, the game thinks he's a dork who's <laughs> trying way too hard to seem cool. And Devil May Cry 3, in large part, like, it has a lot, you know, it's not it's not the most narrative-focused game in the world. But if it has an arc, it's the arc of Dante learning to stop trying so hard to be cool. And, like, he can still have a sense of humor and be playful about his job without like, you know, without trying to seem like the guy who's wearing sunglasses at night, right? Like just fucking chill out. It's way cooler to not try so goddamn hard all the time. Okay. Um so he's kind of like a he's kind of like Luca from Bayonetta if Luca could actually be reformed. Absolutely. Absolutely. That is totally his arc. It's like there's a, there's another part where like um it's, it's kind of a gross scene but not like super that's sort of also the point which is like there is another character named lady because Duff may cry is very clever um falls off of a higher story and he is lower down and sees her and catches her by the ankle and says hey this is my kind of rain and she just shoots him in the face <laughs> it's just like just shut the fuck up dante <laughs> perfect um so it's just like the game is is giving him shit for being being a dork and and you know, trying so hard to impress everyone. It's like, no, just fucking do your shit, man. And then we get Devil May Cry 4, which is a game I like a lot because I think it has the best combat system of the games, but as far as characterization and writing and level design, it's easily the worst of the series. Except for 2, because 2, you know, 2 is basically not part of the series. But in Devil May Cry 4, he gets, uh, I'm not sure if you're familiar, are you familiar with the term Flandersization? Flandersization, like uh, mm-hmm. Ned Flanders from Simpsons. Yes, it is exactly that comparison. The um, in the original sort of the, the coining of the term was basically because in the original like episodes of The Simpsons, Flanders was this like slightly overbearing, slightly like a little too friendly neighbor who was mostly just a normal dude, and as the series went on, he became his like his friendliness and his godliness became exaggerated more and more and more and more until that's all the character was. And that's what happens in Devil May Cry 4, where Dante's just this, like, kooky guy who does all this weird stuff, and he's like, oh, he's, like, singing verses before a boss fight, and he's making sex jokes while throwing roses at people, and it's just like, it's, it's like, a version of Dante where he never learned the lessons of three at all, and he's just maximum nerd. He's just... And the game doesn't seem to know it either. He's just the fucking worst. Um, and that's sort of for that iteration of Dante, that's sort of what we end it on, because there hasn't been, of that, of that lineage, there hasn't been another Devil May Cry since. It's just we end it with the Dante that really wanted to make a joke about how, like, as he's killing this boss, like, basically making a bunch of orgasm jokes like oh yeah nope that's real good dante good work there but 
we also have uh, DMC Devil May Cry, which is, of course, the Devil May Cry made by Ninja Theory, which is supposed to be sort of a, a reboot of the series. And in that, I like a lot of that game better as far as story-wise and stuff, but I also feel like there's this divide... Um, because DMC presents him as being like this sort of like like angsty rebellious teen who also has you know incredible powers, and you sort of have this this juxtaposition there of like his amazing abilities, but also sometimes he can be like angry over the pettiest shit in a really human way, and I think that's really interesting. But one of the things that DMC that I kind of miss from DMC as compared to the rest of the series is they actually present it as being really different because whether this is like an intentional choice or not, the main Devil May Cry games have Dante acting like arrogant and cocky in a way that isn't that relatable because he's like insanely hard to kill and insanely powerful and the game sort of presents it like, well, of course he's not just like any angsty teen you'd meet. You can shoot a rocket launcher into his chest and he's fine. <laughs> that's going to lead to a different mindset that you can't completely connect with. And that's, if if I have any big criticism of the characterization in DMC, it's that Dante was kind of too relatable almost. Like, not personally to me. He was not very much like me at all. But he's like people I've met. And it's like, I can appreciate that but I also feel like there's there's something to the main series' idea that, like, he's not going to be like anyone you've met because of the situation he lives in. Even when he's just a, a, a dumbass kid, he's still just so different than anyone you've met. And I, I kind of, that's one thing that I don't feel like anybody talks about. So that's Dante from Devil May Cry in a nutshell. Yeah, I only really played DMC Devil May Cry for any amount of time, but... Since I wasn't as used to the ethereal godlike Dante from the earlier games, I didn't really see much of a problem with his teen, young adult angsty self in DMC Double May Cry, especially since they they do a pretty good job of setting up why that stuff matters more than... It very much felt like a contemporary to something like They Live, and mm, they handled yeah. that pretty well. And I certainly, like, I'm not trying to say, like, therefore the main series does it better. I think, though, the writing in DMC is just pretty much across the board better than the main series. But it's, they're not really, like, people, some, it feels like sometimes people talk like, well, it just does the, you know, like, well, DMC is the best game in the series. And it's like, well, I don't personally know if I agree with that. I think 3 is better. But also, they actually are doing really different things, especially when it comes to narrative and tone. They're really going for completely different things. So, it it just feels like there there is something that was lost with that version of Dante, and something was gained, but they're different, and and people don't appreciate that. Totally. So, what uh what is your character? Are you brought a relationship this time, right? Mm-hmm. It's a relationship of sorts. Uh, I'm. I brought uh, James Sutter- James Sunderland and Angela Orozco from Silent Hill 2. So with the way that Silent Hill works, more or less, is it's this town with various occult history, and they they find things about, about uh, it knows things about other people and is 
and manages to send them bits of information to draw them in and make them work out some pretty intense internal demons. And uh, the interesting thing is Angela is on her own mission doing more or less the same thing that you're doing as James. You just only get to see her in bits and pieces. So when you initially get to the town for the first time, you meet her in the cemetery where things are more or less going okay. It's just very, very foggy, but no monsters have come out. Nothing else has happened. You two exchange pleasantries like she mentioned she's looking for her mother, who she hasn't seen in a long time. You mentioned that you haven't you need to find your wife here. And on a very surface level, just an exchange like that feels very normal. Like, okay, these are two normal people just going about their business. But just like you find out some pretty intense stuff about what James has done in his past, as you get to know Angela more and run into her more often... You find out some pretty messed up things about her own history. She was a basic she was basically abused by her brother and father while her mother looked the other way and eventually ran away. And that experience has led her to this intense amount of self-loathing and suicidal ideation where she thinks very little of herself and at some point throughout the game, you see her with a knife, and it seems like she's contemplating on using. She's contemplating using the knife until you take it away from her. So, as you see more messed up stuff, you also see her coming out and sort more or less losing the sense of where she already was, like. She starts hallucinating. At some point, she sees you from 15 or 20 feet away and thinks that you're her mother until she gets right up close to you and gets incredibly angry that you are not actually her mother. And Hmm. at some point, it all comes to a head in the hotel building where you also find out what happened to your wife. I don't know if it's... It's been long enough, right? I can just say what happened to yeah. you. Yeah, yeah, you can you can just say it. Yeah, you essentially murdered your wife before coming here, and you've mentally blocked that out. And this is around the time when she's also has come to see. She's more familiar with what exactly happened, or she's more open to talking about it because you're both in this incredibly awful situation. It's to the point where the hotel building you and her meet up in is surrounded by fire. And as she... As you attempt to calm her down and tell her everything's going to be alright, she gets very angry and interestingly, she... Even without her knowing what you've done, she's very suspicious of the way that you're attempting to assist her, which is very surface level. She's She goes, what are you going to just 
get into a relationship with me. You think that you can fix me. You think you can fix everything that's happening around me. And as she walks away and you never see her again, she says the most telling line within that story to kind of put in to put into perspective what she's been going through for most of her life. She notices that you see the fire too, after you mention that it's pretty warm in the building. And her response is basically, oh, you see it too, huh? Uh, for me, it's always like this. And she just ends on that note and walks off into the upper stairwell in this building that's completely ablaze. They don't really... They don't really specify whether she actually died or whether she just let the scene, but... It more, it more or less shows that the trauma that she's gone through isn't going to be as simple as... It isn't something... The way that James approaches her trauma... The way that he talks about it with her is this is the typical sort of thing that other people say to people who have gone through traumatic events or have severe depression. Like, come on, we'll fight this through. Let's well, do it. It's together. like you'll, you'll you'll get through this. It'll be okay. Yeah, you'll you get know. yeah. And it feels like a brilliant uh, a brilliant statement on the developer's part that. Depression isn't nearly that easy to overcome, and sometimes it's just something that people need to learn how to live with in some ways, or it's something they'll be struggling with for their entire lives. And it's it's an intensely mature vision of depression that you, even today, rarely see from anyone else. So I'm not like I I'm no good with horror games. So like I own Silent Hill 2. I haven't played it. I haven't pl- played any Silent Hill games. Um is this sort of like I guess I have two questions which is one it seems like like my understanding is that James is in Silent Hill because he's a shitty fucking person. Um and it doesn't sound like she is maybe is that accurate? Yeah, I thought it, I sort of I guess I always got the impression that Silent Hill was like a punishment for bad people and is that not the case? It's not exactly the case, no. It people can be drawn to it for a number of reasons. It it's very ambiguous about what it actually does because they never explain everything with how it works. But uh you get the impression that they both came out of a shared sense of trauma, even though the source of the trauma was very different for both of them. Hmm. Okay. And I guess the other question is, like, do you usually, like, are there people in Silent Hill, like, who who you encounter in Silent Hill who are just sort of there, or is every, is it always, like, a case of these people who are who are drawn here and have their own stuff they're suffering through? It can vary from game to game, but I think sometime after Silent Hill 1, the general consensus with the way that these things work is they're all there's no store that's open on a consistent basis. There are no 
consistent residence unless they're cultists. It's a situation of more or less every living human you run into during this game is affected in some way or mm. is or or came here everyone here more or less came here because they were lubered here and they have intense trauma they're working through i see and so and so the relationship between james and angela there is just sort of like james thinking he can help and also sort of working through his own shit through proxy i guess sort of like that yeah they their paths mirror each other for quite a bit of time in terms of you see her near the very, very beginning of the game and you see her near the very end. So you get the sense that she's been going through all of this other stuff at the same time you have. So it's like seeing a mirror version of yourself, except this person has a entirely different strategy. But they, they're still coming to terms with it like you are. Hmm. Okay. Cool. That yeah, I've I've always heard that the the writing in Silent Hill games, especially Silent Hill Two, was really strong, and that sounds really interesting. Yeah, the performance, especially like uh, it's hard to get across on podcasts aside from small clips, but the performance was uh, di- people lambasted the performance when it initially came out, but over time, the awkward, stilted nature and the way that it feels... It feels honest, the way that she's reacting to everything around her. Like, sometimes she... There's this, there's a specific uh, erraticness to the performance that feels very human in ways that most professionally acted video games don't. Like, it, it sounds like they're people reacting to what's happening around them, but in very spaced out, uh, unfamiliar ways. And that adds to the, it adds to the bizarre nature of everything happening around you. Huh? Well, I think that's going to do it for this episode of friend request. Thanks so much for listening. If you like this show, you can find us on iTunes and give us a rating or review there or tell a friend about us. We would appreciate that. Uh, you could also find more of our work, including other podcasts, at scanlinemedia.com. And if you want to chip in and help us cover more things, you can go to patreon.com slash scanlinemedia. And any money you contribute there helps us, you know, cover more games and, and buy hardware. None of it goes into our pockets. I want to give a big thank you to Krista Lee for use of her track Hearts Burning Bright, which is our intro and outro here on the show. You can find it on her Bandcamp as well as other work of hers on oldcorepup.bandcamp.com. If you have any questions or comments or just feedback in general, you can send it to uh, at 6264 for me or at JBU3 for Jen. I'm going to put those in the show notes because I feel like every time we take the time to... When people say what their Twitter handle is on podcasts, unless it's really simple, I never remember it. So just use the links that are down in the show notes. It'll be much easier. Um, thanks so much folks we'll see you next time have a good one